with a word of prayer, and we will resume our study from the book of Matthew. Lord, we're here this morning, having read all week uh, these chapters from Matthew, and we're excited to hear what you have for us today, to consider uh, maybe some truths that we overlooked, and to encourage one another, perhaps, with the answers to the questions as we uh, live out our own faith practically. Uh, it's just awesome to uh, see what you're doing here at church. Uh, we're grateful for your word and the way in which it uh, at times exposes sin in our own lives. Uh, it can be a bit of a painful process to uh, look in the mirror of your word, but we're excited in, in, in a very real way to be conformed to the image of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, we have spent the bulk of our time thus far in the book of Matthew, considering both his audience and the purpose for writing his gospel. So just by way of review, who can tell me what group of people Matthew is writing his gospel to? Lynn. Jewish people. Yes, Jewish people, yes. And what is he trying to persuade or convince them of? What's the point of him writing this gospel here? Mike. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, and Matthew's used a couple of tactics to illustrate that for us. We noted it in the first week there that he is just hammering the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. Matthew points back to the Old Testament, uses this formula that says something to the effect of, this was uh, to fulfill what the prophet spoke, and then he quotes Micah, Isaiah, the Psalms, uh, Zechariah, I mean, you name it. Matthew was quoting the Old Testament scriptures to show us that there is a very real connection between Jesus and what the Old Testament has anticipated. And then after that, we looked at one of the key words that shows up in the book of Matthew. That's the word authority. And Matthew demonstrated for us that Jesus has authority over a ton of different stuff. Demons, disease, nature, he can raise people from the dead, he can forgive sins. Jesus has authority like no one else. Matthew is saying, are you guys seeing this? Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the Emmanuel of the Old Testament. He's here. In the process of studying those major themes in the book of Matthew, we've overlooked a big one that we'll look at today. You can see even by the title slide, it's kind of insinuated by what's on the screen there, and that is this idea that Jesus is king. Is this a significant theme in the book of Matthew? His kingship is evident throughout from the very first book when he's introduced as Jesus Christ, the son of David. We should have alarm bells going off in our mind. Oh, he is that long-awaited descendant of David who would rule Forever in chapter 2, when the wise men come inquiring about the baby, they call him the king of the Jews. Jesus will refer to a throne. He'll talk about a kingdom a couple of times. You may have remembered from your reading this week, I think it's in chapter 19, when the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and she says, when you're in your kingdom, can my two sons sit on your right and your left hand? This is found throughout the book of Matthew, but there's one phrase in particular that you would have seen a ton these last couple of weeks here, and that is the kingdom of heaven. Anyone remember seeing that in the reading? Over and over and over again, you're seeing this phrase, the kingdom 
of heaven. I think it's repeated like 32 times in the book of Matthew, most often in the chapters we've just read collectively. But what's unique about this phrase is that it's only found in the book of Matthew. That should strike us as a little unusual. There's a phrase in the Bible that's only found in one book. What's going on here? Why is only Matthew talking about this? Well, we're going to answer that question. I also want to answer the question, how does this kingdom of heaven have significance for our life today? Jesus talks a ton about it in the book of Matthew. We're going to make some personal application as well. But first, to answer the question, why does only Matthew use this phrase? There's this phenomenon that occurs in the Gospels that when the Gospel writers are recording the exact same event, Matthew will use kingdom of heaven to record what Jesus said, and the Gospel writers, Mark, Luke, and John, will instead write kingdom of God. Let me just show you one quick example of that. In Matthew chapter 19, from our reading this week, we read, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Luke recording the exact same event of people bringing their children to Jesus says this. Luke says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Sounds familiar. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. What's going on here? Why do Mark, Luke, and John say kingdom of God and Matthew says, no, 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 this is the kingdom of heaven. Well, I think you can tell even by, like, the context of what's going on here that these two things are synonyms. They're using different words to describe the same thing. Let me give you an example. We're kind of familiar with this. Recently, I had someone tell me that they were standing in line for a drink at the bubbler. And I was like, <laughs> takes me a second to process what a bubbler is, but I realized, oh, you're talking about a drinking fountain, right? And maybe you got to like, no, it's bubbler. <laughs> but we're using different words to describe the same thing. In the same way, we can tell by the greater context of these verses, Matthew and Luke, they're recording the exact same event. Yes, they use different words, but they're talking about the same thing. And so then the question is asked, okay, if they're talking about the same thing, then why is Matthew purposefully changing what would be kingdom of God to kingdom of heaven? Perhaps much like how bubbler means nothing to people outside of New England, perhaps Matthew is using this phrase, kingdom of heaven, because it has significance for his audience, for Jewish people. Perhaps there is something special about that exact phraseology that to Gentiles doesn't mean a whole lot, but to Jews, oh, this could be significant. Let me put forward a couple of different uh, ideas that have been Uh, offered by scholars as to why Matthew used kingdom of heaven. This first one is probably the most popular, and it goes something like this. Jewish people at the time had an extreme regard or respect for God's name to the point where they were hesitant to even use it. And so to avoid breaking the third commandment, they would substitute out words like heaven for God's name. Uh, One example I read said something like, Uh, Much like we would say, heaven smiled on me today. We don't actually mean like heaven, the place, smiled on me. We mean God. In a similar way, Jewish people, in an attempt to not take God's name in vain, may have substituted out his name with a word like heaven. I personally think there are some weaknesses with that position, but it's very popular today. 
Another option for why Matthew uses kingdom of heaven is a little bit more theologically, uh, I'll say grounded, and it goes something like this. In the book of Daniel, a couple of times Daniel refers to a kingdom, and let me just describe for you how Daniel describes this kingdom. He says this, Daniel describes the God of heaven setting up an eternal kingdom. There's another verse in Daniel, I think it's chapter 7, in which it says that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven to set up his kingdom. You notice that I was emphasizing the word heaven there, and knowing what we do about Matthew, how he has a propensity for pointing people back to the Old Testament, maybe he is keying people in to this idea that the very same kingdom that Daniel is talking about in which heaven is a a theme that is repeated, maybe Jesus is the one who inaugurates that very kingdom. Could be. I think that one has a little bit more theological significance. We know Daniel likes talking about the Old Testament. Maybe that's what's going on here. We don't really know that for sure either, but there's just a couple of options for you. Now the question, what is Jesus teaching us about the kingdom of heaven? He talks about Matthew and, and Jesus records, excuse me, Matthew records Jesus' teaching about heaven the kingdom of heaven, more than any other gospel writer. It's a significant theme of his in this book. What is Jesus trying to teach us about it? Well, from the very first appearance of this phrase, kingdom of heaven, we begin to see something pretty significant. Let me show you that first sentence here. Matthew chapter 3 is its first appearance. This is John the Baptist talking, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me ask you, knowing what we do about John the Baptist and his ministry, who is John kind of insinuating that is inaugurating this kingdom here? Jesus. Yes, this matches up well with what Jesus says in the very next chapter when he begins to preach. He says the same thing. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. And at a minimum, the first thing we would conclude about the kingdom of heaven is that it is inaugurated by Jesus. His arrival initiates this kingdom of heaven. And given what we know about Daniel and him talking about this eternal kingdom, that could be a nice parallel there. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus comes talking about this kingdom of heaven to the Jewish people, they're probably excited the long-awaited Messiah is here, setting up the kingdom that the Old Testament talks about. Sweet! We need this guy to come set up the eternal kingdom. We know very well what it is for Rome to be ruling. We're glad the Messiah is here, but although as Jesus starts talking about his kingdom, maybe they're left scratching their heads thinking, uh, this is not the kingdom we were expecting you to set up. Let's just consider some more of Jesus' teaching, uh, particularly as it pertains to uh, entrance or acceptance into this kingdom. Here's an example. Let's just say that I wanted to transfer my citizenship from this country to a kingdom that exists today, the United Kingdom. What would it take for me to, you know, change my citizenship? probably establish some sort of residency, fill out some paperwork, get approved by their government, and more or less I'd be a citizen. Here in the United States, the easiest way to become a citizen is to be born here. You're granted a citizenship 
at birth. In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, uh, you can't move there. You can't apply for it. You don't get it by nature of being born a Jewish person. Jesus is going to teach us about the kingdom of heaven that there are some spiritual requirements. This is evident from the Sermon on the Mount. One of the first things out of his mouth, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we see the word poor there, we shouldn't think like financially impoverished. It's not like if you're poor, then you get to go to heaven. Jesus is saying those who recognize a spiritual poverty, for them, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He offers a complementary teaching in uh, a verse we've considered a handful of times already through this study in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, talking about the Pharisees. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has given us a list of the spiritual requirements to enter this kingdom. You must be spiritually impoverished. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. This is humanly unachievable. Jesus is making the point that to enter this kingdom of heaven is incredibly difficult. In fact, that's not even stating it high enough. It is impossible to enter this kingdom of heaven if left to our own. This is illustrated well by when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. This might have been from our reading this week. And he asks Jesus, you know, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus tells him, sell all you have, give to the poor. And he turns away sad and Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And as I understand it from what I read this week, there seemed to be this idea that rich people in Judaism were deemed the most blessed by God. Likely they had the highest percentage, if you will, of entering this kingdom. And so it makes sense then that if it's with difficulty that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven, then Peter asked the question, well, then who can be saved? If rich people don't even have a chance, then who does? I think it's obvious to you now how Jesus is the key to entering the kingdom of heaven. Right? When we admit that we are spiritually impoverished, We have nothing good that we're bringing to the table of salvation, that we need a righteousness that exceeds our own. Jesus has offered us that, where God can do the impossible and turning a stony heart into a heart of flesh. Jesus is the answer, but I want to make the point that it's more than just knowing that Jesus is the answer to our problems that allows us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And perhaps one of the most sobering passages of Scripture Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus goes on to describe these people who in the last days come to him and they say, we've cast out demons, we've done mighty works, look at our resume, our credentials scream, we should be in. And Jesus says, Depart from me. I never knew you. There's more than just a verbal assent required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, yes, I know Jesus did all these things. I know he's the answer to my problems. Jesus says here, it is only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. In the larger context of this passage, we're talking about bearing fruit here as evidence of true conversion.
that pretty well sums up, well, let me say this, from this teaching about entrance into the kingdom of heaven, we're realizing, the Jewish people are realizing, that you're not in just because the Messiah is a Jew and you're a Jew. In fact, John the Baptist is going to say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, you think you're good because Abraham's your father? Don't hold too tightly to that. Uh, God can actually, from these very stones right here over on the ground, make children from Abraham. So your descendants, your connection to Abraham, gives you no good standing with God. To, to enter this kingdom here that Jesus is talking about, there are some very real spiritual requirements, as Jesus will tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you need a change that takes place from the inside out. You need to be born again. Here's John 3, 3 for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that concludes a pretty general summary of Jesus's requirements to enter the kingdom, but he's not done talking about it. I'm not going to get into the, the weeds of some of these other things, but Jesus talks a ton, as I've said already, about the kingdom of heaven in his book, in, in the book of Matthew. He loves to refer to it in parables. He'll say the kingdom of heaven is like, and say, a mustard seed, a man who has a treasure hidden in a field, a net that catches a ton of fish. Uh, it's over and over and over again. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. Let me encourage you, if you have some extra free time and are curious about this. Go back and look at it. Jesus talks about the hierarchy or the economy in the kingdom of heaven, if you will. The disciples come to him asking, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, whoever's the least among you will be the greatest. He is flipping what we know about kingdoms totally on its head, be it how you obtain citizenship, be it who is the greatest. Jesus says, my kingdom is unlike anything you've ever seen before. As we conclude, I want us to consider the significance of the kingdom of heaven for our own lives. For those of us who are in Christ, we find ourselves in kind of a unique situation in that we are citizens of a kingdom that we've never been to, that we've never seen, and yet we're citizens of it. It reminds me very much of what is described of the patriarchs in Hebrews chapter 11, where it's described of them that they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Let me explain for you what's going on here. The author of Hebrews is saying that in the Old Testament, some of these people referred to themselves as exiles, as strangers, not because, like Abraham, they moved from their dad's land to Canaan. If that were the case, he could just move back. They referred to themselves as exiles because they realized they were not a citizen of any kingdom on earth. They were a citizen, they were looking forward to a better country, a heavenly kingdom. And so the question I think that begs to be asked is, for those of us in Christ, which kingdom has captured our affection? 
this material kingdom that we reside in right now, much like in keeping the illustration with Abraham, much like Lot did with Sodom and Gomorrah, where he was so enamored with what was going on over there. Next thing you know, he's like immersed in their city. Or are we looking forward to that better country, the kingdom in which we are truly citizens? Uh, I think knowing that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom is incredibly unifying, right? Think about this. In this room, even, there are those of us who were not all born in the same earthly country. We may not see eye to eye on different political issues. We may vote for different people. We may have disagreements about how this kingdom on earth should be run or that kingdom should be run. But if we are in Christ, all of us in this room are citizens of one kingdom. We bow our knee to one king. That should be so unifying. We shouldn't get caught up in the petty disagreements when we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, serving the same king, accomplishing the same mission. I think knowing that our citizenship does not reside here frees us to look forward into eternity and to have unity with those who are really, truly of the same, I'll say, uh, kingdom as us. It's just an awesome thing for us to consider. I hope that that is just a one little bit of encouragement to you to let our nationality in heaven be most important to us. Let's transition now to the discussion questions. All right, from Monday's reading in Matthew chapter 17, we had the question, given what you know about Matthew's audience and his purpose for writing this book, why do you think he included verses 1 to 13 in his gospel? I'll stop there and let you answer that. Given what you know about the book of Matthew, why is verses 1 to 13 included in this book? Any ideas? Craig. Yeah. Yeah. Craig said to reveal himself as the transcendent, glorious king. If Matthew is trying to illustrate to Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah, what better way to demonstrate that than to include the very account in which Jesus' face shines like the sun, his clothes are white as garments. He's already said, look, the Old Testament's pointing towards him. He has authority like no one else. In case you've missed it, here is a giant indicator that Jesus is God. The, the transfiguration just like cements that in our mind's eye. So let me ask you this. I guess there's not really another question technically, in this next section here. But Revelation 1, 12 to 16, contains another description of what Jesus looks like in all of his glory. Then I ask you to meditate on the humility of Christ in leaving this glory behind to become a lowly servant and die on your behalf. Any, any comments from that comparison uh, between these two accounts here? Anything that was uh, particularly like noteworthy or caught your eye as you were reading both of these accounts? Okay, maybe this question was too hard, but I was hoping to just demonstrate for you 
that the 30-some years that we have recorded for us of Jesus' life in which he was humbled is not the majority of how Jesus has existed, right? When, when you see John in Revelation chapter 1, he, he can't even describe Jesus' glory. He has to use words like like. He's like, his eyes were like fire. He, he's never seen anything to describe this before. When he turns around and sees Jesus, he falls on his face as though he's dead. You and I would have the same reaction if we saw Jesus. We'd fall down. He was afraid. Jesus actually has to tell him, fear not. And so that same Jesus who strikes fear into the hearts of people just by his appearance is so intimidating and awesome in the truest sense of that word is the same Jesus who left all of that behind came to earth as a servant. Isaiah describes him as having no form or beauty that we should desire him, no majesty. He left all of that behind and just became one of us, flesh and blood. He's so humble. Uh, I hope that even just reflecting on that just caused you to consider, like Philippians does, that we need to have that same mind of Christ and humbling ourselves, becoming the least of all. How about the second question from Matthew chapter 17? Read 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. How did the transfiguration impact Peter's own life and his future ministry? We'll stop there and I'll let you answer that first question. How did the transfiguration, yeah, clear. Yes, exactly. Peter's still talking about what he saw up on that mountain. He remembers. He says, I saw Jesus. This thing, that I, this message that I'm communicating to you is not a myth. It's not a wives' tale. It's not a figment of my own imagination. Peter says, I saw Jesus on that mountain in all of his glory. He is God. He's still talking about it. It empowered him to preach this message. It confirmed already what he knew to be true. There's a part of me, even as I was thinking about the answer to this question a little bit later, that thinks that Peter had it pretty easy. Right? How many of us would believe in Jesus if we got to see him on the Mount of Transfiguration? Whoa! And yet I couldn't help but think about Jesus' words to Thomas when Thomas had a really hard time just accepting that Jesus had risen from the dead. He said, ah, I won't believe unless I can touch and see for myself that this is true. Anyone remember Jesus' words to Thomas? Have not seen and believe. Yeah, how awesome is that? That's us. Those of us who haven't seen Jesus and we still believe, Jesus says you're blessed. I think that's pretty awesome. How about this uh, second question here? Let me ask you, what has personally convinced you of the truth about Jesus? Can anyone give maybe just like personal testimony as you were thinking about this? Hmm, why do I believe in Jesus? What is it? Yeah, Katie. Yeah, Katie said, when we deserve punishment, Jesus forgave us. Lisa, did you have your hand raised? Yeah. Yeah, I love that verse. Where else are we going to go? The answer is with you, Jesus. 
Yeah, I, uh, for myself, was just thinking about, like, the validity of God's word. Like, there's no other explanation for what we have in front of us in God's word. I hope you've even seen that as we've studied the book of Matthew, the interconnectedness of scripture. You, you, you can't make this up. All these different writers talking about the same thing. This is God's revealed word to us. What he says about Jesus just makes sense to believe in some ways. Yeah, I, I hope that at least some of these questions were just thought-provoking for you. Let's move on to Matthew 18. This is the classic text for what we traditionally call church discipline. Let me ask you in your own words, how does Jesus say the church should treat those who refuse to repent of wrongdoing? Bonnie. Yeah, for those of you who didn't hear, Bonnie said that basically if you go through this whole process of one-to-one, then get it two or three, and this person is still unrepentant, you treat them as an unbeliever. Jesus actually says, treat them like a tax collector, a Gentile. These were not the nice people of the day. That's why I wanted it in your own words. What is Jesus saying? He says, those who refuse to repent even after this repeated confrontation, it's probably true of them that they don't know Christ. So in light of that, how should we respond when people confront or rebuke us for sinful behavior? Jeff. Yeah. If it's true that refusing to repent of something is an indicator that we are not regenerate, we should see this confrontation, although confrontation nine times out of ten is no fun to be a part of, on either the giving or receiving ending end of it, when done right, when done lovingly, when someone confronts us about a sin for our spiritual well-being, we should be humble and repent. Jesus says, you've gained your brother. Fellowship is restored. You guys can both get back to the mission of serving Jesus. Second question from Matthew 18. According to the parable in verses 23 to 35, what should our thought process be when people offend us in significant ways and then seek our forgiveness? What should our thought process be according to the truths of this parable when we're offended and then someone seeks our forgiveness? Yeah, maybe flesh that out. Can someone just like kind of walk me through maybe the, uh, yeah. He forgave, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, what, 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 yes. That's exactly it. Yeah, in light of this parable, we are not the person at the very end of the story who owes someone 20 bucks, right? We are the person in the parable who has been forgiven a debt that we could never repay in a hundred lifetimes. And in Christ, we hear the pronouncement, you're forgiven. So how selfish is it to then turn around and be unwilling, knowing that we have been forgiven a huge debt, say, nope, I can't forgive my brother. So second question, conversely, what might you conclude about a person who is unwilling to forgive? 
Julia. Yeah, Julia said that they won't be forgiven. I think that is clear in some of Jesus' teachings. Uh, if you can't forgive, the Father won't forgive you, roughly. Lynn. Yeah, they lack compassion. I think at very best, a person who's unwilling to forgive has just forgotten what they've been forgiven of. At, at worst, maybe it's an indicator that they were never forgiven in the first place. I uh, was listening to a sermon, I think last week, in which, I, I know we talked about Jonah maybe two years ago now, right there at the end of chapter four. Uh, Jonah does not want to see the Ninevites saved. <laughs> he's sitting on the hill waiting for God to nuke him. He wants to see that. And he's just angry. I knew you were going to be like this, God. We would conclude about Jonah. He wasn't considering that he had been forgiven a huge debt. In talking about this, the pastor uh, gave a, a modern-day example of this um, that I'll do my best to recapture for you. I guess at the end of World War II, uh, there were some prisoners of war uh, from Nazi Germany that needed a chaplain. And they tapped this guy on the shoulder who was a pastor in New Orleans, and they said, hey, will you come be the chaplain for these prisoners of war? Now, keep in mind, this is not like your low-level, like, private in the Nazi army. This was like heads of armies. Significant powerful, influential people. And as this guy's going over there or being asked to do this and be their chaplain, I mean, officers in the American army are telling him, come up with an excuse. You're, you're too old. You, you do not want to do this. Another guy told him, you have the most unenviable job in all of America right now. To go tell these Nazis about Christ? And this pastor really, like, seriously, like, took a couple of days to just think and pray about it. He felt the same angst that maybe you do in your hearts. Like, I have to go tell Nazis about Jesus? And I imagine that at some point in the process, this truth came to his mind. That he had been forgiven a huge debt. Can he not go tell Nazis about Christ as well? The pastor kind of concluded, uh, I guess the story wrapped up with um, eight of these 15 officers came to know Christ as a result of his ministry. And the pastor just kind of said, uh, you know, in, in heaven, you are going to be worshiping alongside Ninevites and Nazis. And it was like, hmm, we need to remember what we've been forgiven and in turn show the love of Christ and forgiveness to other people. From Matthew 19. What can we learn about the way that Jesus treated children in verses 13 to 15? And how is this consistent with what we've observed from Jesus' treatment of the marginalized already in this book? What were some of the things that were coming across your mind as you're reading these accounts? Yeah, Will. Yeah, as to reading the text, you definitely get the impression that this was, uh, from the disciples' perspective, an annoyance. Here are people coming to bring these kids. Uh, the parents want Jesus to lay their hands on him, pray for them, and the disciples are like rebuking them, like, get out of here. Maybe there's more important people to heal or more pressing things to do. And Jesus says, no, 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 let the children come to me. Like Will just said, Jesus makes time for everybody. 
I couldn't help but be rebuked as I just thought about my own life. And it is very difficult for me to give, I'll say, the needier people that I interact with my full attention, my full time. I'm always like trying to get somewhere else, maybe to those who are, uh, I don't know, more important in my mind. That's not how Jesus operated. He made time for everyone. Second question. Has being a follower of Jesus cost you anything? Take a minute to reflect on how aligning your life with Jesus has or could set your life in opposition to the values and affections of the world. I'll stop there and just ask you guys, maybe rhetorically, so you don't have to answer this one, but is it possible to live and follow Jesus and simultaneously be at peace with the world's values and everyone in the world? It's not. And so if you're observing your Christian life and living in this world's pretty comfortable for you, what's that tell you about how you're following Jesus? Probably not well. Perhaps you've compromised. Maybe you just need to think about what in my life needs to change so that I am a better follower of Jesus? According to verse 29, then, what encouragement is there for those who have left everything to follow Jesus? What does Jesus say? Yes, Julia? Okay, you'll inherit eternal life. Anyone else? Maybe the exact wording of that verse if you wrote it down. Lynn? Yes, I want to particularly key in on that last like, little phrase there. Jesus says, whoever leaves houses and mothers and fathers and lands, gives it all up, will receive a hundredfold what they've left behind and eternal life. Just this week, I came across a uh, uh, kind of a, a creative retelling of the man who finds the treasure hidden in the field. And I'll try to do my, do my best to capture it. Uh, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. Here's a guy walking along the road. He's in a field. His foot like stubs, let's say, a treasure chest. And he looks down. Oh my goodness. Opens it up. There is just like wealth beyond belief in a field. Well, what does he do? He closes the lid, covers it with dirt, really like quietly goes home and like keeps the secret to himself. He notices the field is for sale. He starts like doing a garage sale in his house. I mean, the couch is on the driveway, the TV's in the driveway, the car's up for sale. His wife is like, what are you doing? You're selling everything we have. Why? And he's like, trust me, it'll be worth it. He sells everything he has, and he buys a field. Unbeknownst to everyone but himself, there is a treasure beyond belief that he now owns. In the same way, knowing what awaits us, are we not willing to sell everything in this life and follow Jesus? Are we willing to look foolish in the eyes of the world? What are you guys doing? What don't I know about? Why are you living this way? Oh, we have a treasure in a field that is worth 
living foolishly in the eyes of the world for? Getting rid of everything here of material value to obtain that. Yeah. From Matthew chapter 20, I try to move quickly. According to verses 25 to 27, how do Jesus' instructions regarding leadership and greatness differ from that of the Gentiles? We'll stop there. How, how does Jesus' instruction regarding leadership differ from the Gentiles? Jeff. Exactly, yeah. The Gentiles, they loved to lord their power distance over other people, looking down their long noses, you peasants. Jesus says, uh, in my kingdom, leaders serve. How did Jesus personally model that for us, according to verse 28? Uh, Temi. Gave his life for us. The Son of Man came not to serve, but what? To be served. To give his life a ransom for many. And then I had kind of a thoughtful rhetorical question here. Which model have you been practicing in your own life? Has the Gentiles' way of thinking really captured your affections? And you're like, hmm, I am important. I am powerful. I know it. Or have you followed Jesus in being a servant of all? Second question from Matthew 20. I wanted you to read again the account in verses 29 to 34, giving special attention to Jesus' disposition towards these blind men. Remember the story? There's like this great crowd, like surrounding Jesus. He's walking, and then there's these two blind guys that are like yelling out at him, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd actually like starts actively suppressing them. They're like, shut up. Jesus doesn't have time for you. They yell out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stops, and he comes to them, and he heals them. From a human perspective, Jesus was not very good at networking, right? He wasn't like hanging out with the most influential people of his day, the movers and shakers of the world. It might have been a nice PR move to hang out with some blind guys every once in a while. But Jesus makes time for everybody. If I were the center of attention in the crowd, no way am I paying attention to two like dudes on the fringe. Jesus makes time for everyone. So what kind of picture is Matthew painting then of our king? Claire. Yeah, so compassionate. Anybody else? What picture is Matthew painting of King Jesus? Andy. He's so kind. Shirley, were you about to say something? He loves everybody, yeah. Julia. Exactly, yeah, he doesn't care about what other people think. This is our king. We're going to look at him again next week in greater detail. But Jesus is unlike any king that we've ever been exposed to before. It's unbelievable. All right, two more questions. Verse 5 in Matthew 21 is a quotation from Zechariah 9. Matthew is continuing to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And I wanted you to contrast the triumphal entry in Matthew 21 with Jesus' entry back into earth in Revelation 19. What differences, very quickly, did you notice about these two different entries? Titus. 
Yes, 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 yes. Great job, Titus. First time, Jesus is riding a donkey, says that he's humble. Second time, oh, he's on a horse, yeah. Hutch. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, first time around, Jesus is coming humbly and to die. Second time Jesus comes, oh, the picture of him is pretty awesome. He's on a white horse. He's got an army behind him. He's coming to judge. He's coming to reign. I hope that you can see that in the text. Last question, very quickly. Uh, The chapter records several interactions that Jesus had with the religious rulers. They're trying to trap him, entangle him in his words. People still hate Jesus to this day. Why do you think that is? Sadatu. Yeah, because who he is and what he represents, Will? I think that's a big one. Yeah, Grace. Yeah, uh, Bunny. Yeah, you guys are all kind of saying the same thing. If Jesus is our king and he's real, then what? We have to submit to him. People hate that idea. That is uh, terrifying. We love to be our own king. So that is the end. You heard the bell. Let me pray really quickly and we can be dismissed. Lord, we are grateful for your son. We're grateful for the example that we have of him here from the book of Matthew. It is just pretty cool to see the kind of life that Jesus models for us. Humble, compassionate, loving. Um, Please, Lord, make us like that. We fall very short. Help us to remember that our citizenship is not part of some kingdom here on earth, but we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.